God, we ask for your blessing on your word. We know your word is blessed, but we also know that it requires spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear. Uh, Lord, we know it requires your spirit to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. So we ask for your spirit to, to help us receive the blessing um, that is in your word, uh, specifically in this text, Second Samuel chapter 8, tonight, God. We uh, want to be open to hear from you and be changed by you as Julie was praying. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same. So, God, change us from the inside out. Speak to us clearly. Speak to us profoundly. Um, and help us to apply some of these things we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, we were discussing a very famous topic, uh, the Davidic covenant, right? In Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and we looked at the promises of God there concerning David and his lineage. If you remember first, it came from David asking Nathan the prophet, basically telling him, hey, I want to build God a house. I want to build him a temple. I dwell in this house of cedar, this really nice house. And God is in this rundown tent, right? Uh, Nathan at first said, hey, do whatever is in your heart. You know, that sounds like a good deal. I don't think God's house is up to par either. But then Dave, uh, then Nathan spoke to the Lord. He had a vision and God told him, no, 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 that's not how we're going to go about doing this. David has too much blood on his hands. He's not going to build me a house, but rather I'm going to build him a house. And what was the house he was talking about? Well, essentially he was telling David that he was going to build his dynasty. He promised David that the Messiah would come through his lineage and we see the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant uh, fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how the Davidic covenant affects us now and today. How this promise to one individual has serious eternal implications. So we see the Lord's hand on David's life. We see God's favor on David's life and we're going to continue to see God's favor on David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 8. But this time it's not going to be through the form of a covenant. It's going to be through the form of victory. See, God is going to protect, preserve, and empower David so that he can conquer some of the surrounding nations of Israel. Title of this teaching is The Conquering King. The conquering king. We're going to look at David's conquest here in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and recognize that it's foreshadowing or it's a picture of the conquest of Jesus Christ specifically when he comes to rule and reign on the earth during the millennial kingdom. If you would with me, it's 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. It says, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Well, if you recall, could be on the same page. Maybe it's one page over. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, we see that David was in a season of rest. It says, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house that the, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. So David was in a season of rest, but in 2 Samuel chapter 8, he's not in a season of rest. He's in a season of war. 
And what can we learn from this? Well, this is the reality of our spiritual walk. We're either in a battle, we just got out of a battle, or we're getting ready to go through a battle. As long as we live in this world, there are going to be battles. It is going to be difficult. And the more we purpose to live for Jesus, often the more spiritual warfare we bring or invite into our lives. So David, he had his season of rest. Now he's in a season of warfare. If you're not going through spiritual warfare right now, hate to break the news to you, but you're going to, okay? You absolutely will in the future. So when we get these seasons of rest, we got to take advantage of them, all right? We got to get recouped. We got to get ready for that next battle that we're going to walk through because in my experience, that those seasons of rest are few and far between. David, being the warrior that he is, the first place that he takes over, or the, the city that he takes over, is a city of the Philistines. If you remember, as we've studied First and Second Samuel, the Philistines have wreaked havoc on the Israelites. The Israelites have had some victories, some through Jonathan, some through Saul, but overall, the Philistines have really devastated the Israelites, way back from Judges all the way to where we're at now. Most of the time, it appears, at least in the text, that the Philistines were winning these battles, but David doesn't that let that deter him from fighting against his enemy. Why? Because his confidence is in the Lord. It's not in his ability as a great warrior. His confidence is in the fact that God has favor on his life and he knows that God is going to deliver him from all his enemies. So we see the first people, again, are the Philistines, which if you recall, uh, David dwelt with them for a while. Um, so these guys are pretty, probably pretty upset. This is the second time we see him fighting against the Philistines. They took him in and now David's slaughtering all of them. They probably should have realized that, you know. David, uh, Saul killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands, many of them. If not most of them were Philistines. Uh, nevertheless, David, he takes over this city, Metheg Amma, this city... Um, is likely the city of Gath, if you want to take a note. It's First Chronicles chapter 18, 1, uh, parallel passage. Um, Gath was where Goliath was from and his family. So that was a crucial, essential city for the Philistines. They had five main cities, and Gath, is the one that's mentioned the most, is likely um, the powerhouse of all of them. So the text is indicating that, that David took over basically the most powerful uh, capital city of the Philistines. But what's also interesting here, as we look through this text, it's not just going to be the Philistines. It's going to be the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites. We continue to see David inching away at the enemy's territory. He takes more and more of the enemy's territory and literally the kingdom of God spreads. This is a spiritual lesson for us. See, when we're fighting the good fight of faith, when we're walking in obedience to the Lord, when we're advancing the kingdom of God, we inch away at the enemy's territory. What do I mean? 
Maybe a story would help us understand this better. Uh, before I went to Liberia, uh, I had to do some research on it and looking into the civil war that they had before I got there. You basically had 16 tribes. They were all killing each other, literally cutting each other's limbs off, cutting each other in half with chainsaws. Like It was brutally disgusting, the stuff that they were doing to each other. And it wasn't for any other reason, but because that person was from a different tribe. So this is what was going on. And then you had this mass surplus of missionaries go there and pastor chet was one of them started planning churches sharing the gospel had a house for child soldiers adopted a few child soldiers that i'm friends with today and we begin to see the kingdom of god advancing in a very dark place and just inching away at the enemy's territory what's the point The Lord gives us the power, the authority, and the calling to do just this. He calls us the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill. We're literally called to be ambassadors of him, shining his light through this dark world. And we literally can be avenues by which the Lord brings light into the world. And uh, an avenue by which the Lord radically changes dark places. How does that happen? How do we advance the kingdom? Well, it comes through prayer, right? Pray for all men. Pray for unbelievers. Pray for our country. Pray for Running Springs. Pray for San Bernardino County or wherever the Lord puts on your heart. It comes through conversations. It comes through evangelism. It comes through loving on people. It comes through getting ourselves out of our own comfort zone and recognize that, recognizing that there's a, a greater thing that's going on in our lives other than our daily routine. There's a bigger picture that we're a part of. We're called to advance the kingdom of God. And by the power of God, He literally will allow us to inch away at enemy territory. He literally can use even one individual to turn a place that's identified with death and darkness and wickedness and turn it to a place of light. I saw it in Liberia. There's a church now on almost every corner. Yeah, they have their problems, but they're not all killing each other anymore. God did that. And he did it through people. He did it through people praying. He did it through people evangelizing. He did it through people doing the work that he called them to do. This is what's happening with David on a different level. He's inching away at the enemy's territory. He's advancing the kingdom of God. It's 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 2. 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 2. It says, Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off, them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So we see the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Okay, His daughters got him drunk, slept with them. Really disturbing story. Uh, anyways, so we have the Moabites, but we also see that David's grandmother, Ruth, was also a Moabite. Okay, Not only that, if you remember... Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, you can write it down, verses 3 and 4, uh, when David was fleeing from Saul, he actually allowed, uh, he had his family stay with the Moabites so that they would be protected because he's connected to them uh, by blood, literally. 
But now he's killing them. He, he's killing all of them. This kind of, you know, pose the what's going on, David? Why are you killing these people that you're kind of related to? Uh, the reason likely is, is because the Moabites generally were enemies against God's people. And David at this point is going against, fighting against the enemies of God's people. But one thing that's important for us to note in this passage among many, this text here that says in the beginning of verse 2, then he defeated Moab. This is the Hebrew word Naka, okay? N-A-K-A-H. And it literally means to strike down. This word Naka is mentioned five times in this chapter. It's a central theme to this chapter. The king is striking down his enemies. This is point number one. The king will strike down all his enemies. The king will strike down all his enemies. Now, I'm not just talking about King David. I'm talking about King Jesus. There will come a day that Jesus, when he comes back, he will strike down all his enemies. It will happen at his literal, physical second coming when he comes and stands on the Mount of Olives and he battles in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to battle against the Antichrist and the false prophets and Satan and all the surrounding nations that come against Israel in the Lamb. Let me show you. It's Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Okay, this is the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 16. And uh, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He's the ultimate authority. Look what happens in verse 19. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who uh, received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, fire burning with brimstone. The king is going to come back. And he's going to conquer all his enemies. But not just all his enemies. He's going to conquer all of our enemies. You ever feel like you're going through a season where the enemy is just beating you up? He's just, you just feel like you're being defeated. Okay, first of all, he can't defeat you, and we'll talk about that later. But second of all, we can have a confident expectation. That's what hope is. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation. In other words, I can be certain of it, that he's going to come back. He's going to conquer all of our enemies. Hell, death, Satan, the curse, every single one of those things that comes against us. And we will live in and experience that ultimate victory. Though we have battles here and now in this life, in the next, the battles will cease. We'll be in perfect unity with God and all our enemies will be slain. He goes on to say, so look what it says here uh, with the Moabites. It says there were some that he kept alive and there were uh, others that he put to death. It appears in other translations that he killed the taller ones and kept the shorter ones. What he does with all the different enemies is he weakens um, 
their military, okay? So they can't come back against David. He doesn't slaughter all of them. He could have, but that's not necessarily the point. He's trying to make a point that now God's king is in power over Israel and things are going to go God's way. He's setting uh, an example. He's setting the standard. He's instilling fear, absolutely, uh, but he does end up killing half of the Moabites. The other half, it says, uh, became David's servants. They submitted to him and they ended up paying him tribute. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover the territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So we see this man had a desert, the son of Rahab, Rahab, king of Zobah. Um, he's a king of Syria. Okay. Syria was separated into two parts. It was split. You had Zobah and you also had Damascus, which we'll see here in a second. So what we're going to see David do is he takes out one half of the kingdom of Syria. Then he's going to take out the other half of the kingdom of Syria. If you look back in the text, it says in verse three that he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. What we see David attempting to do is conquer all the promised land that God gave, that God promised the Israelites that they would have. It's not like he's just going to other countries and pulling an Alexander the Great and just trying to conquer the known world. He's not doing that. He's simply trying to conquer the land that God had promised. Because you remember with Joshua, they didn't rid out all the people like they were supposed to. Though they had many victories and got into the promised land, there were still Canaanites left in the land. Now this promise concerning the promised land uh, was given way back during Abraham's time. That's the first time that it's mentioned. We see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. It says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. But you see there, it says he promised them the land up to the Euphrates. That's exactly what David's doing right now. He's trying to conquer the promised land. So we also see David in this text. It says he hamstrung all the chariot horses. That doesn't necessarily mean he killed them. Uh, basically, uh, what they would do is they would cut the sinew by the hamstring uh, so that they would be ham- uh, hindered, so they couldn't run as fast. Uh, He's not just like going out there like killing animals. He's trying once again to weaken the power of the military. Okay. They had enough horses for a thousand chariots. So it could have been one or two horses, a chariot. So thousand, two thousand horses, something like that. So he weakens their military and then he leaves. He spares 100 chariots. I'm not sure if he took these chariots, these horses for these chariots, or if he left them. 
But we do see, even if he took them, there is something noble about David not taking all one to 2,000 uh, horses. Why? Because the king wasn't supposed to multiply for himself horses. Let me show you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, long before David, God said, yep, you guys are going to have a king. And, and here are the requirements. Here's the moral standard that I want them to live by. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. He says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. What? Like, that's like the first qualification of this guy? Yeah, I gotta choose him, and he can't have a lot of horses. Why would God care whether this man had horses or not? Well, it's likely for sev- several reasons. Um, you know, they had donkeys back then, but, uh, maybe God wanted to keep the Israelites in the promised land with horses. They can spread out past the promised land. But we also see mainly the world powers, uh, around Israel, they put their faith in horses. And they had chariots and having horses, cavalry, cavalry, and now I always get it confused. I remember when I first heard of like cavalry, I'm like, is it really cavalry? Like, are they just spelling it wrong? What is cavalry? Um, yeah, cavalry. Um, those were, um, you know, the greatest militaries. It'd be like having uh, having uh, jets or uh, aircraft carriers or battleships or, you know, some of this. That was their technology. We got horses. We ride horseback. We have chariots. That was like the, That was like a tank, if you will. So the other nations put their trust in horses for their military military power. God didn't want him to do that. He wanted the king to put his trust in who? To put his trust in God. Actually, God clarifies this further in Psalm chapter 20. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots. This is David speaking. He knew the lesson. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in material things some trust in their jobs their career path their ability their intellect their material possessions whatever the case may be if we're putting our trust in anything other than the lord then it's a trust that's always going to disappoint God is the only one that can be faithful. He's the only one that, that can deliver. He's the only one that can preserve, that can protect, that can give us victory. We see, as we talked about last week, he chose the Israelites not because they were strong, but because they were weak. He chooses us because we were weak. We are weak. First Corinthians chapter 127, God chooses the foolish things, the weak, weak things, the base things of this world. See... Like these other nations, we can put our trust in things that will always disappoint. David didn't put his trust in horses. He put his trust in the Lord. He could have just taken all of these horses, but he didn't because he knew he shouldn't trust in horses or chariots. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. 
So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Okay, so now he takes over Damascus, the other, um, the people from Damascus. He takes over the other half of Syria. How did this happen? Once again, it says, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. The reason David was so successful is because God's favor was on his life. He was preserving him. He was protecting him. And because God was protecting David and his men, David's army was literally unstoppable. This is the second point. The king's army is unstoppable. The king's army is unstoppable. I'm not just talking about King David once again. All these points apply to King Jesus. We are a part of God's army. Do you recognize that? We're part of the army of God. And look what happens after the rapture, when we get raptured up to be with the Lord, then at the end of the tribulation, we're going to come back with Jesus in that battle of Armageddon that I mentioned to you before. It's in Zechariah chapter 14. In Zechariah chapter 14, we see Speaking of the Lord's second coming again, he comes, he stands on the Mount of Olives, he engages in this battle. Look what happens. Zechariah 14, verse 2. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And then that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Okay. We also see Jude said that says, uh, tells us that, um, Jesus is going to come with 10,000s of his saints. He's not talking about literally 10,000. He's talking about an innumerable number. The bride of Christ is going to come with Christ, the groom, and we're going to be a part of this battle. Okay. Are we going to be fighting? I don't know. Maybe we're just watching. It's not like the Lord needs us, but he uses us and we are the army of God. This is not just then, this is also now. As we discussed in 2 Timothy chapter 2 on Sunday, if you were with us, we're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. If you want to write it down, it's 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 to 4. We're called to be good soldiers as Jesus, uh, for Jesus Christ. It says that we're not to be entangled with the cares of this world. We're supposed to engage in the warfare as good soldiers. And the amazing thing about being good soldiers of Jesus Christ is that we're essentially unstoppable. We're essentially invincible. Not that we can't die or nothing bad can happen to us, but guess what? We can't die. The enemy can't defeat us until the Lord calls us home. We're literally invincible until God calls us home. Now, we can't use, use this to justify doing something foolish. But the reality of it is, God, he calls us to be soldiers. He calls us to be a part of his army. He calls us to advance his kingdom. And he tells us, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Be strong and of good courage. Be courageous because I got your back. Nothing can stop you unless I allow it to happen. I got you. See, the Lord 
by the power of the Spirit, we can be this army that is unstoppable. The problem comes when we forget that we're soldiers fighting in a battle and we entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life and get stuck in this comfort zone and get stuck in a culture and get stuck in spiritual complacency. The reality is that we're soldiers called to be on all the time. Not two hours a week or four hours a week or 40 hours a week, but 24-7 God calls us to engage in the battle. In Romans chapter 8, we have further assurance about this invincibility, if you will. In Romans chapter 8, the Lord says in verse 31, through the Apostle Paul, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as is, is it, as it is written for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ because of that love. We're more than conquerors. We're not victims. We're not victims, so we shouldn't play the victim. We're not a victim in this world, even if we've been the victim of something. The Lord says, no, no, no. Leave the victimization behind you. You're a conqueror. I'm calling you to engage in a battle, and as long as you fall into this victim mentality, you're not going to fight. You're going to have the mentality that everybody's fighting against you. But no, that's not who you are. You're more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. That means I want to give you victory. And sometimes we don't experience the victory because we forget we're soldiers fighting in a battle. He says, you're soldiers. You're my army. You're unstoppable. And you're conquerors because I love you. And nothing can separate you from that love. So you'll continue to conquer as long as you continue to fight. The text goes on. Second Samuel chapter 8. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Beda and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Then Toi, King Toi, King of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer. Then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these things to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Roab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek. And from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. So, 
What we see here, as David continued to have victory, he accumulated possessions. But not only that, there were other nations, specifically in this text, Toai, that recognized God's favor on David's life. And they said, in other words, we want to be on his side. He's defeating everyone else. And we're glad he's defeating some of our armies. But we better make sure we're on the right side of this battle. So they end up paying David tribute. David didn't have to attack these people because they submitted to him had they not submitted to him david would have likely destroyed them see this man toai he chose to serve the king as opposed to being destroyed by the king this is the third point serve the king or be destroyed by the king serve the king or be destroyed by the king it's one or another you might say, we're talking about a God of love. We're talking about a God of grace, but we got to remember he's the conquering king. And he actually tells us this in Matthew chapter 10. If you want to look real quick, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he says this. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it serious words i didn't bring come to bring peace i came to bring a sword literally saying i came to divide I came to divide. And he's not saying that I want to break up families. God created the union of marriage and families. God's all about family. That's why he invites us into the family of God. But he draws a line in the sand. You you choose which side you want to be on. Either you're for me or against me. There's no putting your feet on both sides. It's one or another. If you're not in relationship with the Prince of Peace, then there is no peace. There's the sword. Okay, peace only comes when we're on the right side. He's, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to force you to make a decision. And not making a decision is making a decision. You're on my side or you're against me. James, his brother, half-brother, would say this later on like this. In James chapter 4, verse 4. In James 4, verse 4, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says you're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. Why? Because the God of this world, Satan, is an enemy of God. So if you're a friend of the world, that doesn't mean that you can't be friends with people in the world. But when you choose the side of, I'm going to be in the world as opposed to live in God's world, if you will be a part of his kingdom, he says, you're not my friend. You're not my friend. Am I serving the king or am I a friend of the world? Which is it? 
Am I standing on one side, not knowing which side to stand on? Is my foot on one side and my foot on the other? Am I in that lukewarm place where the Lord says, I would rather you just pick a side, I'll spit you out of my mouth. But more than that, I desire that you would pick my side, that you would be my friend. Why? Because the Lord, he didn't just call us to be converts. He called us to be disciples. He called us to be followers. He called us to be servants. And to be a friend of God means to serve God. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 14, or sorry, John chapter 15, verse 14, this is what Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command. Okay. Imagine if I said that like to everybody, like that I was going to be friends with, I'll be friends with you, but you have to do whatever I say. It's crazy, right? I couldn't get away with it, but Jesus can't. Why? Because he's Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. He says, you want to know how you're my friend? You're doing what I'm asking you to do. You're being obedient. Now, this isn't scary dictator, Jesus. This is, I love you so much, and I'm such a good friend that I tell you things to do for your own benefit. And so if you're not doing things for your own benefit, if you're not walking in obedience, you're not a friend of me, nor are you a friend of yourself. You're destroying your life. And I want you to be my friend for your benefit because I love you, and I want to keep you in my love. But you got to do your part too. A good friend of Jesus obeys what he asks them to do. So we see King David conquering this land, this guy, Toai, this other king. He brings him tribute. He submits to the authority of David. We see Toai and his people are a picture of tribulation saints. We'll see when we study Revelation, if you've been with us in the past, um, after the rapture and the tribulation happens, there are going to be those uh, that end up recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. It says they're going to look on the one whom they pierced, uh, both Jew and Gentile. There will be certain people that don't take the mark of the beast, and they actually submit to King Jesus versus submitting to King Antichrist, if you will. And these people specifically will be left to serve during the millennial kingdom, okay? And will rule and reign with Christ. We'll get into that in just a second. Toai and his people give us a glimpse of the tribulation saints. They're not strictly a part of the kingdom in the same sense that the Israelites are, but they're still under the same authority of the king. They're going to serve the king. But this isn't just a reality in the future. This is a reality in the present. If we don't serve Jesus, yes, we believe in Jesus, but what does biblical faith look like? Biblical faith, it looks like putting our trust in Jesus, which is an action word. We don't work for our salvation, but we work from it. And when we accept Jesus, he comes into our heart and starts changing our lives. So if I've truly accepted Jesus, he's going to change my heart. He's going to change my life. And he's going to give me more and more of a desire to serve him and to follow him. And that's really what it looks like to be a Christian. I should be coming more and more of a servant of Jesus as time goes on. On the other side, if I say, no, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to submit to him. I don't want to serve him. We're asking for our own destruction. It's not God that sends people to hell. It's people that send themselves to hell. Hell is just a place where it's the absence of God. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth because there's no goodness. There's no light. There's no life. At least not life in the sense 
of the life that Jesus provides. See, those that don't submit to the king will be destroyed by the king. But look at what David does with all these possessions that he gains, all this silver and gold in verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. David recognizes that the only reason that he's had victory is because of the Lord. So he gives it all to the Lord. He gives all the glory. He gives all the honor to the Lord. He knows it's not about him being a great warrior, though he was, but he didn't even think of things like this. This is about the Lord. He's the only reason that we've had victory. This same truth holds true for us, at least it should. When we experience victory in this life, when we experience any good thing in this life, even the bad things, we give glory to God. We give honor to God. It's not about what we did. That's pride. It's about having humility and recognize I can do nothing without him, as he promises. Nothing worthwhile anyways. Nothing fruitful, as he mentions in John chapter 15. So David, he dedicates all these things to the Lord. Now, specifically, these were the resources that would be used to build the temple later on. Uh, David... I don't know how I think about this, but uh, David was told he couldn't build a temple, but he accumulates all the resources. I don't know. Is it compromised? I'm not really sure. Uh, but Solomon would use these resources later on to build, de- uh, build God this temple. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He made himself a name. He made a name for himself. He was a mighty warrior. He was someone to be feared. Someone to be feared, not just because he was a mighty warrior, but because God's hand of protection and favor was all over his life. The reason David made a name for himself is not just because he was a warrior. It started with David having having a heart after God. Long before David was a warrior, he was a little shepherd boy with a heart after God. So the name that David made for himself, it didn't just start here battling the Syrians and the Moabites and the Edomites. It started way back shepherding the flock shepherding his father's flock because that's when that heart that desire was produced to love god and from there god was making a name for david david was building a reputation that reputation yes somewhat flawed somewhat righteous if you will it was essentially wrapped around his love for the lord what's your reputation i mentioned this a couple sundays ago in acts chapter 9 What's the name that you're making for yourself? What does your name mean to other individuals? As we discussed, when we look at names in the Bible, it's connected to character. It's not just something you call someone. It means something. It has a deeper meaning. That's when God reveals his name. He reveals character attributes. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Lord, the Lord your God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Yahweh, I am who I am. I've always been. I'm not going to change. Our name, too, bears character. And when people think of your name, what do they think of? It can be redeemed. It can be changed if there's negative connotations connected to your name. Because God, 
He wants to make a name for us. He wants to make the meaning of our name attached to his name. So when we bear the name of Jesus, that name Christian, we're bearing his name. Again, it means little Christ. He says, I won't want your name to just be associated with what it used to mean, what your past was. I want your name to be associated with who you are in me as a son, as a daughter, as a servant. Because this is what your name should mean. But is it meaning that? The Lord's responsibility to do that work in us, start changing the character, but it's our responsibility to live that out as he's changing the character. And as he changes the character, our name starts meaning something that it never used to mean. David, his name, it's meaning something more and more. The text says, as David made a name for himself, killing 18,000 Syrians. It also says in verse 14, he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. We see that again. The Edomites were uh, descendants of Esau. If you remember Jacob's brother, um, So this is still kind of lineage, but they are enemies of God's people. Um, There's loose connections in there uh, with their ancestors. Um, But anyways, he he takes uh, many of them out because uh, they're enemies of God's people. It says they became David's servants. So ultimately, whether they were forced to or they volunteered to, we see all these nations ultimately submitting to the authority of David because David submitting to the authority of God. They recognize David as the man, the king, the one to be feared, the one not to mess with once again because God's hand was upon him. We see David, he conquered all these lands with a sword, with his men. We see King Jesus one day in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. He's going to conquer the entire world, not just the promised land. He's going to conquer the entire world with what? With a sword, right? He's going to come on a white horse as we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. This is foreshadowing who Jesus would be. He'd be that conquering king that conquers the nations with a sword. David... At this point, as we mentioned, he's conquering uh, the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. And we see throughout history under David's rule that um, the Israelites never had more territory than they did then. Okay, He conquered so much. He had the majority of the promised land. And how was he able to accomplish so much? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that sought God's will. He was a man that desired to do what God was asking him to do. It's amazing what we can accomplish when we're focused on what God wants and not what we want. Remember, the king that came before David was who? King Saul. What did he spend the majority of his time doing? chasing after David, not protecting his flock, not conquering these other nations. In the beginning, he conquered a lot. But as soon as he had the distraction with David, he keeps going after David and leaving his flock to fend for themselves. And the flock, they start asking David to help him. 
See, when we focus on the Lord's will, when we focus on doing what he wants, we can accomplish so much. One of the biggest ways we hinder ourselves is when we fight for things that we want when it's not what God wants for us. And we hinder, and we miss out on so much. The Lord says, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you a hundredfold. You will be so fruitful if you just do the little things that I'm asking you to do. Be faithful with the little things. I'll make you ruler over many things, but I can't make you ruler over many things if you can't be faithful with the little things. David was faithful with the little things. God made him ruler over many things, and he accomplishes more than any other king accomplished in the history of Israel. That's why he's considered the greatest king that Israel ever had. Greater than King Saul, greater than Solomon, greater than anyone else, David is considered the greatest king. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all the people. We see that during David's rule, he administered judgment and justice. Point number four, the king rules with judgment and justice. The king rules with judgment and justice. The idea here in the original language is that David made fair decisions based on the word of God. Okay, He wasn't just saying what he thought you know, the people should do. He was making decisions, trying to instill justice according to God's standard as he laid it out in the world. We see Jesus do that perfectly, okay? And he's going to do it perfectly when he comes to rule and reign in this world. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government should rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a picture of the Lord's uh, humanity as a son, but also his deity. He'd be called Mighty God. You ask a Muslim about this, it's really interesting what they'll say. Sometimes they're thrown off about this. It's like, wait a minute, God said this, and they quote Isaiah in the Quran. Had some fun conversations with that. But the point is, it says also that the government will rest upon his shoulders. He'll be the leader of the people. He'll be the leader of the government. And as he leads the government, he's going to lead with judgment and justice. When he comes back, he's going to judge the people that don't, that didn't accept him, that took the mark of the beast. He's going to separate the sheeps from the goats, right? He's going to come with his bride. Goats over here, the unbelievers. Sheep, tribulation, saints. Uh, that have been saved during the tribulation, obviously. Over here, he's going to judge. And the people that he rules over, he's going to instill justice. He's going to be fair. Things are going to be right. Things are going to be different than they are right now. We're going to live in harmony with the Lord. People will suffer for the consequences of their sin, be rewarded for their righteous acts. And we look at this justice and the justice of God and sometimes we can think, in this world, I don't always see justice. I don't always see justice. Why do these horrible things happen to people? Why do these horrible things happen to me? Justice will come eventually. God promises justice for eternity. But I want to challenge us for a second. When we look at this justice thing, a lot of times God, we want God to... Um, to, to instill justice for us or give us justice, right? If somebody wronged me, somebody stole from me, somebody did 
cursed me, if somebody did whatever to me, they betrayed me, they broke my heart, whatever the case, they lied to me, and I want justice. Justice should be served, right? I want justice to be served for me. But what happens when I do something wrong? When I wrong someone else? See, when we look at the justice of God, we have to look at the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is death. So when I get all bent out of shape because someone wronged me, we also have to remember that justice would be any time that I sin, I would actually, I'd, I'd be killed. The first time that I sin, I would be put to death and sent to hell. So we got to rethink that. Do I really want justice in that sense? Well, there's good news. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, it says we're justified before God. We're justified before God, meaning he declares us righteous even though we're unrighteous because the wages of sin are death. He paid the price for the death that we deserve, and through believing in him, we are justified. But the Lord's justice cost his son his life. That was a lot. Yes, the king will rule and reign with complete perfect justice one day but there is also a reality of the justice that we experience in the present we're justified before god though we deserve uh, hell and death because of our sin we don't get it because of the blood of the lamb so when we consider justice we got to filter it through the fact of what we actually deserved the text continues lastly in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 16, Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites and David's sons were chief ministers. Okay, we could spend a lot of time talking about these different characters. We'll get in some of them, uh, get into some of them a little bit later. But there's a general thing that's happening here that the text is trying to teach us, and that's that David wasn't trying to do everything by himself. Okay, he delegated tasks. He used the people around him, and this is also true not of just King David, but King Jesus. This is point number five. The king rules with others. The king rules with others. He delegated tasks. He didn't try to do everything on his own. And we see Jesus do just that as well. As crazy as it sounds, yes, he's the ultimate authority, but we see in the millennial kingdom, we actually rule and reign with Christ. Let me show you. It's Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, these 24 elders on 24 thrones, which more than likely represent the church in its entirety. Look what they say here. This isn't the only text we're going to go to to prove this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. The church is literally going to rule and reign with Christ on this earth during the millennial age. So much so that 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Corinthians are like suing each other and taking their brother to court. And so Paul corrects them and he says, hey, listen, do you understand the responsibility you're going to have? Okay, if you can't deal with these issues, you're going to have a problem in the future. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? That's a lot of responsibility, right? We're going to judge the angels. We're going to judge the people that are left on this world. In this world, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. The point is, even Jesus Christ doesn't do it alone. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. He uses people and he delegates tasks. He invites them to be a part of his responsibility and gives people responsibility. He's not the guy that tries to do it all. That's not who Jesus is. He uses people, people that are flawed, people that are weak. And he says, hey, I'm going to give you some of my responsibilities. Now, you're not going to do it as good as I could do it, but it's okay. I'm going to entrust this to you, and I want you to do your best. How much more should we delegate responsibilities? How much more should we use the people that God places around us? Now, I'm not talking about just using people to get something out of them. I'm talking about not getting so prideful that we think we have to do this life alone. Not getting so prideful that whether it's our jobs or our family life or our relationship with Jesus, whatever the case may be, that we think that that this is just a solo game, that I just have to do this all by myself. Sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. Sometimes we're too prideful to ask for help. Sometimes we don't see the people that God's brought around us to help us. And a lot of times when we don't see that and we try to do it on our own, we fail and we fail miserably and we cry out, God, why don't you help me with this thing? And he says, I've been trying to help you. I've been sending you people left and right and you won't get the help that you need. You won't ask them for help. I'm sending you help through people. But you're too prideful to ask for help. See, the Lord, he rules and reigns with people. Not that, not because he has to, but because he's the way and he's trying to teach us a lesson. Though he's sovereign, he still gives out responsibilities. In this text, just as God used King David to conquer the surrounding nations, so too will God use King Jesus to conquer the entire world when he comes back in his second coming and establishes his millennial reign. Now, sadly, just as we saw these people fight back, we'll see other people fight back later on. But not just later on, even in this life, there are people that fight back against the conquering king as if they're going to win. That's a battle that no one will ever win. The wisest thing we could do is submit and surrender. Sadly, mankind does not long to receive but lives to resist the rule of Christ. And that's a sad thing. But those of us who have surrendered, those of us who have recognized that he is a loving king, he is a worthy king, he is the rightful king, he is a righteous king, we get to be ambassadors for Jesus. And if we're truly his servants, we are called to, again, to be his ambassadors and to represent his character on this earth. We do that through prayer, through reading the word, 
through growing, through fasting, through all these tools that God gives us, all in an effort to recognize we're working for something greater. We're attempting to advance his kingdom. But in order for us to advance the kingdom, we got to live as if we're in the kingdom. He says, live as heavenly citizens now. What do heavenly citizens do? They worship the Lord and serve the Lord. That's what we're called to do now. See, kingdom living doesn't just wait for when Jesus comes back. It starts right now. It starts today. And as we live for Jesus and live that kingdom mentality, that heavenly mentality here, we get to be a part of the Lord's conquest now. We don't have to wait till Jesus comes back and conquers everything. We can take, as we mentioned, uh, inch by inch away from the enemy's territory. He wants to use the army now, not just later. But we got to be ready. We got to step up, recognize that we're soldiers engaging in a battle. And the most precious thing is on the line. And that's the souls of men. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are victorious, that you have conquered the enemy. Lord, and you're going to come back to claim that victory, God. And I just pray that if we're walking through a season of defeat, that we'll put our faith in you and recognize the victory that you've already won for us, but also recognize, God, we don't have time to play victims. We don't have time to wallow in our defeats. All those things are from the enemy to hinder us and being the soldiers that you've called us to be. God, so I pray that we would be good soldiers for you, Lord, that we would purpose to advance your kingdom. God, that we would recognize our purpose here is so much greater than uh, just our daily routine. But we recognize that in the midst of our daily routine, it's an opportunity to be good soldiers for you. God, so help us be a part of your conquest. Give us that mentality. In Jesus' name, amen.